Um, Sabato Mundi, when I suggested this as a subject for a lecture, it was an obvious topic because it had come out, a lot of notice, a lot of excitement, and um, uh, it attracted a lot of attention. What I didn't dream was that its location would be unknown and there'd be so much mystery and unresolved things. Leonardo is extraordinary. He attracts myths, he attracts incredible events, he attracts thefts, he attracts all sorts of dubious goings-on, and I get besieged by the people I call Leonardo Lunitz. It's a very, very remarkable field to be in, and uh, nothing is ever simple with Leonardo, and uh, this proves to be the case with the, with the Salvatore Mundi. Obviously, it became news. Um, you can say it's a world record price for a picture, but I think in a way it's not a normal picture, it's Leonardo. So it's a world record price for a bit of Leonardo's legacy, which you're buying into. So I wouldn't extrapolate from that into old master prices at all. In fact, old masters are not selling very well, and Christie's sold it as a celebrity picture, along with Damien Hurst and other celebrity, celebrity images. Uh, at the lecture, I'll look... I'll put the record straight, I hope, about the stories. The press have been, in, been um, covering these things incredibly badly. Um, they've just been looking for sensation, looking for stories. New York Times had three stories on successive days about its ownership in the Middle East, all of which were wrong. Um, there have been pronouncements by people totally arbitrarily in the press, so the, the quality of the public debate has been terrible. So in the first part of the lecture, I will look at the try to set the record straight in terms of the story of the picture from its discovery. And uh, the second part, I'll confront the picture, which almost none of the press coverage, none of the sensational coverage has done, actually looking at it and saying, what have we got here? And how does it relate to, to Leonardo himself? Um, just a preliminary, um, we knew that Leonardo had generated a picture of the Salvatore Mundi, uh, the various bits of evidence, not least a series of copies. We're now up to, I think, about well over 20 copies or close variants of it. It didn't mean to say that Leonardo actually painted a version of this, uh, but it means that he, de he devised a composition uh, which maybe was painted in the studio, maybe painted by followers. Anyway, that's what we thought. Um, on the left there is a rather nice, pretty, rather tight version, top left, um, uh, which, which was in the um, Yarborough collection, the collection of Lord Yarborough. I'll be coming back to that. One top right, this is, was in the Degane collection and um, has been mooted as Leonardo's original, as we'll see, it's certainly not. Um, the one in the bottom left shows how terrible these, some of these copies can be. This is the one I described as a drug-crazed hippie. <laughs> And the one on the right is by Leonardo's rascally pupil, uh, Salai, and is dated 1511, which is a, I think it means that the Leonardo composition must have dated from before that. Um, we also have a very splendid etching by Wenceslas Holler, who worked in Britain and in Holland uh, from Czechoslovakia originally. And he, he made this engraving of a Salvatore Mundi, which he says is from the hand of Leonardo, and it's dated 1650. 
This is consistent with it being in the collection of Charles I, whereas Charles I was beheaded in 1649 and his pictures were dispersed to his debtors. So the fact Harlow doesn't say who owns it uh, is consistent with that. I'm not dealing with the Charles I, the Stuart Provenance. We're writing a book on the Salvator Mundi and my colleague uh, Margaret Dalaval is writing about the Provenance. So I'll be dealing with the picture, but not <coughs> it, it, its, uh, its history other than after its immediate discovery. Um, most important of all, we had two drawings at Windsor for the drapery of the Salvator Mundi. Big drawings, red on red chalk on red paper. You might think it's rather odd to do red chalk on red paper, but Leonardo liked it for its subtlety, the fact that it seemed to be softer and more pliable than simply doing uh, a drawing in dark materials on a, on a white paper. Um, the, the left sleeve on, on the left and working out, beginning to work out the drapery with the plaque in the, in the centre of the... Uh, in the centre of the, uh, the, the the costume there. And in the bottom right-hand corner, that might not be Leonardo, but the, the rest of the drawings are, in, are entirely, in, entirely autograph. So we, knew, we know that um, Leonardo was planning this, and we know that the, uh, there are lots of versions which correspond in some ways to these drawings. The Arbora picture is interesting because all the other versions, including... <laughs> Um, the one I'm going to be talking about, have a rather looser structure of the cloth around the cuff, around the Christ's right hand. But the Arbor picture has picked up what, what is shown in the drawing. What happened with Leonardo is he's an incredibly slow painter. In his studio, often the studio assistants got and painted a composition before the Leonardo was settled. So the preliminary stages leak out, as it were. That happened with the Madonna of the Armminder and in other examples. In fact, the Prado copy of the Mona Lisa is like that. So this very slow process, the, the lads obviously got impatient and thought, right, well, we'll finish the picture. And then Leonardo changed his mind and did something different. But uh, uh, there we are. Uh, the Ganet picture is probably the most handsome of the various copies. Um, is in a contest de Behag collection, which has a very distinguished recent history. It's just that bit laboured, a little bit mechanical, and it doesn't have that visual magic, that elusive, strange, uncanny visual magic which Leonardo has. But even if we lay aside aspects like that of uh, a connoisseurship of what I call judgment by eye, the infrared absolutely excludes Leonardo. It's very mechanical very accurate, very careful. And Leonardo drawing on his panels is invariably rather wild and experimental. So that niggling exact quality of it uh, rules out the Ganet as being the original, which it, it hadn't been widely accepted, but uh, one or two scholars thought that it was uh, at least from Leonardo's workshop. The story... Uh, begins in April 2005 when an auction in Louisiana, um, in New Orleans in fact, uh, had this picture in it. Um, and dealers now, all these auctions are online, so the chance of a provincial auction, I don't mean Los New Orleans is provincial, but it's not a centre for art world auctions, um, 
At one time, you could get bargains. Now they're all online and the dealers go through systematically every picture in which they think looks at all promising. And two dealers saw this in the, in the sale in Louisiana online. Um, Robert Simon, New York, and Alexander Parrish, who were close friends, they both said to each other, this looks fairly old. And that was the best they thought about it. Um, and indeed, it wasn't terrifically promising. We now know the person who sent it into auction. It was a man called Warren Kuntz, um, rather a good name for collecting art if you're up on your German. And this is when his house was being sold. Um, and this is the only picture we've got of it in, in Warren Kuntz's collection. And it show, this is a photograph of the stair, stairwell, not of the picture, but it happens to show the Salvatore Mundi in, in his collection. For a long time, we puzzled who Kuntz was. I had a theory that it was probably somebody punning the name of Kuntz, uh, uh, Kunst art, art in German. But uh, anyway, it, it obviously attracted a certain amount of attention Was it went for $10,000, which is not trivial. And it was on panel and it looked pretty old, which is what attracted Robert Simon and uh, Alexander Parrish to it. And, but they didn't dream that it was going to be more than a decent early copy. And decent early copies of Leonardo fetch rather a lot of money, so it was, it was a perfectly uh, good thing to do. What they found was, when they got the picture, that it was a known one. It had been in the Cook Collection in Doughty House in London. Um, Cook Collection, very distinguished, um, built up round about the years either side of 1900 with the help of J.C. Robinson, who was a great connoisseur, a series of spe spectacularly good pictures, including the Fra Angelico uh, Filippo Lippi Adoration of the Kings in, in National Gallery, Washington. It's that kind of standard of, of pictures. Um, the Salvatore Mundi was not well regarded. It was clearly not very prepossessing at that point. This is the catalogue which calls it uh, Boltraffio, not even real, real Boltraffio. Boltraffio is a student of Leonardo, so it suggested it's, uh, it's some, some remove from Leonardo. The arrow on the right-hand side shows it hanging rather skied on the wall, indicating it wasn't thought to be of much consequence. In the uh, 1958 sale of the tail end of the Cook collection, the big sales had been earlier, it crept into the tail end of the connection as Boltraffio, it had been upgraded slightly, um, sold to Kuntz, that, that's the... Uh, the indication on the right, for £45. Um, so it, it wasn't de desperately prepossessing uh, pre at that point. And we had a collection of what it looked like in the Cook collection, and this is it. This is the drug-crazed hippie. We'd all seen the photograph, you know, those of us who go through photographs of um, in the wit and so on of Le Leonardo and Leonardesque pictures. Nobody give that a second, second glance. Uh, I don't think you need much art history to see it's, uh, it's not terribly convincing as a Leonardo. Anyway, the, they got it for 10000 thinking it was an old picture and it might come up quite nicely and maybe be worth a penny or two. Um, Robert Simon took it back to New York and he knows Diane Modestini, who teaches conservation at the Institute of Fine Arts in New York and is a, a world-renowned conservator. Um, he took it in, by, in a taxi across New York to Diane Modestini's house, um, wrapped in a bin bag. 
uh, or uh, tr trash can liner or whatever it's called in America. Anyway, not a very dignified uh, way, way to, to carry it, but he wasn't, didn't have much expect, expectation of it. Diane did a test clean and said, oh, this is obviously worth having a go at because it was clear that there's an enormous amount of overpaint on it of the very crude kind. Unfortunately, the cruder the overpaint is, and the later it is, the, the better it comes off. Um, and they proceeded to clean it with their eyebrows ascending. Um, and one day uh, she called uh, Robert Simon and said, you really have to come and look at this. Um, anyway, what happened was that uh, that particular frog turned into a prince. There's the picture we now have. So uh, it is the most extraordinary transformation. Um, it was heavily damaged. This is the picture stripped down with all the overpaint, all the infilling missing. It's on a walnut panel with, as you can see, a big curved grain which had tented. That's to say the, the grain had probably were very bad conditions, lots of humidity changes that pushed up into a tent, as it were, and somebody simply sliced off the top of it and then painted over it. Uh, uh, hideous things happened to pictures in the past. You might think this looks terrible, but if you saw pictures in, say, the National Gallery here or the Met or somewhere, you saw them all stripped down, you'd be surprised. Um, most of them are quite heavily restored. They're 500 years old, and they were even when they were thought to be good pictures, they suffered more indignities than we would now subject them to. Um, and that gives a, a, a good idea of the worst bits of damage. Um, it was taken to a panel specialist, Monica Griesbach, and she separated out the two main bits of the panels from that central split, and also at the bottom had five separate bits of wood. Um, you can see it here in Monica's treatment table, all clamped and being glued back together again and cradled. So it's had a tough life, um, but I uh, say so it's, not, it's not unique. What emerged during the restoration were various signs saying this is the original of Leonardo. It's battered, but it's the real thing. Um, there was a pentimento in the thumb. All the copies use the turned-in thumb, but there's a ghost emerged of a, more, of a straighter thumb. It doesn't mean it's by Leonardo, but it's useful, as it suggests that it's not simply a mechanical copy. And if it was a mechanical copy, it'd be difficult to see why, uh, the, why the copyist didn't copy the thumb in the, in, in the position which it is in all the other, all the other paintings. Um, other pentimenti, other changes of mind emerged. Pentimento is the Italian word for regret. The artist is, as it were, regretting doing something. Um, the original cross bands with this interlace pattern, they're originally much more curvy. Leonardo's early knot designs are all swinging curves. Sometimes they have angular junctions, but um, basically this is a... Uh, he starts painting this, as far as we can see, in a rather earlier knot-type design. Very excitingly, at least for me at least, is the appearance in the overchrist's left eyebrow, the right as we look at it, of a handprint. Leonardo's technique was very unusual, and even the boys don't seem to have picked this up. He would use, he's left-handed, so he would put the heel of his right hand into the paint 
uh, to soften it as it's drying to get these very uh, soft tonal transitions. Um, it's a signature technique of Leonardo. It doesn't mean say somebody else couldn't have done it, but it, it's a very strong pointer that uh, Leonardo's hand, in a literal sense, is, is visible, in the, visible in the picture. And it begins to add up. You know, you notice all these clues, and one itself isn't decisive, but cumulatively they become rather important. And it was after this, after it had been restored, and after this had found that um, uh, the picture entered my life uh, on uh, on the fifth of March two thousand and eight. Nick Penny, the director of the National Gallery, phoned me up and said, "We got something. I think you would want to see here." You don't turn down that sort of invitation. And I went into the National Gallery. The, the picture was in the conservation studios of the National Gallery, um, alongside the Virgin of the Rocks, which they were preparing to clean for the Leonardo show they were already planning. Um, I went in. There was uh, Robert Simon there, who I didn't know, who played a very backseat role. Um, Carmen Bambach from the Met was there, two Italian scholars, Maria Teresa Fiore and Pietro Marani from Italy, and the National Gallery conservation staff and Luke Sison, who was planning the exhibition. You go in, you, you immediately get a sense, oh, you know, this has got presence, it's got a zing as I call it, but you don't want to get carried away with that. If you do, you can see what you want to see. You have to be very careful. And also it's, it's a bit unnerving with... I was the last one to arrive and the other people were there and you think, what do I do? Do I look enthusiastic? Do I say hello to them and try to ignore it? Uh, I, I got out my magnifying glass, which I not normally have with me and it makes me look fairly professional. There it is. Um, and I, I, I looked at it rather carefully and uh, I said the... And I'd done some geology at Cambridge when I did natural sciences and I said that's a rock crystal sphere, not a brass sphere or whatever. Uh, it's a bit premature but it, it actually has held out quite well and it, it, it becomes, as we will see, a cue to, again to Leonardo being deeply involved in the invention of the picture. Um, it had that presence. It isn't enough, as I say. I was trained as a scientist so you're always trying to falsify something falsification is the name of the game. Find out what's wrong with it. If you've got cadmium yellow in it, then it's a write-off. Cadmium yellow is a synth synthetic pigment for the late 18th century, etc., etc. Um, anyway, the National Gallery were convinced it was by Leonardo and decided to include it in the Leonardo show. I did a big interview in the Wallace Collection, in fact, um, with Cathy Brewis, uh, a Sunday Times journalist, who did a terrific write-up before the exhibition opened. Sunday Times were the media partners. Uh, very accurate. I, I said to Cathy Brewis afterwards, you can't really be a journalist. You haven't made a deliberate mistake. <laughs> um, and it appeared in the National Gallery, National Gallery exhibition in, in 2011, running through to 2012. There it is. I think this is a posed picture, but there it is nominally being hung straight between the two drawings. And in the exhibition, it looked at home. One or two people said, oh, it's rather a boring subject for Leonardo, but if you're painting a Salvatore Mundi, that's what you do. It's a, it's a kind of set, set image. Incredibly popular exhibition. Uh, they sold out all the tickets 
before the all the regular day tickets they sold tickets in advance they sold before the exhibition opened so people queued for the day tickets and they were on sale in the in the web they were more expensive than Bruce Springsteen concerts on the black market and the first uh, the National Gallery issued a thing saying you cannot change your tickets this is illegal this is terrible but they're absolutely chuffed um, Then what happened is these two gentlemen enter the scene. In theory, a National Gallery shouldn't be sending, selling, exhibiting works which are in the trade, but um, they did. Uh, what it happened shortly after that is the man on the right, Yves Bouvier, who they call King of the Free Ports, these are storage facilities in places like Geneva, which are full of valuable works of art and works of art that are valued highly. They're not necessarily the same thing. Um, and he's king of the free ports. He has them around the world now. And he stored these incredibly valuable objects. And he was using his knowledge, rather dubiously, I have to say, of what was into massage sales to people he knew wanted particular kind of pictures. And he was massaging sales from his stores to the man on the left, who's Dmitry Rybolov left. A Russian oligarch, uh, made his money with fertiliser chiefly, owner of Monaco Football Club. Um, an absolutely archetypal um, oligarch. And Bouvier sold the Leonardo to him. Um, what it transpired, and uh, Riboloff left, learnt this as a party, is that Bouvier had been selling these pictures at a massive markup, not just the normal kind of 20% or, or whatever, um, it turned out that the National Gallery, uh, the, um, the, the Salvatore Mundi, was sold, bought by Bouvier for 93 million, uh, bought via a Sotheby's transaction from the dealers, and it was sold to Riboloff Leff at 127.5 million, which is a big markup. Uh, Bouvier was disgusted by this. He had. Uh, yeah, uh, left was disgusted by this. He had Bouvier arrested in Monaco and charged with fraud. Needless to say, the legal case and all the bails and everything are still going on, as happens with the law at this level. And he was so disgusted by this, he decided the pictures he bought from Bouvier, Dmitry left was going to sell. Um, the Salvatore Mundi was the last of the pictures uh, to, come on, to come on the market. Um, it went, as we know, to Christie's, um, not Sotheby's, who'd been involved in, in the earlier activities, and sold for £400,000, £450,000 with the buyer's premium. Um, and you can see the telephone bidding. It was sold to a telephone bidders. Um, if you wanted to do a gender analysis of what the Christie's staff are doing, you think it wouldn't show Christie's in a particularly good light, but um, you can make up your own, own minds on that. Um, then the rumours started that it had been bought by a Saudi prince, Prince Badair, that it had been bought by Mohammed bin Salman, who's obviously got other troubles on his crossing his de desk at the moment, etc., um, etc., et that had been bought by a rather dubious American. And none of these are well founded. 
Uh, it was announced in the autumn in September, or it was announced that it was going to be put on display in Louvre Abu Dhabi, this outpost of the Louvre in Abu Dhabi, in this wonderful building by Jean Nouvel. Um, I've been there twice, and it's one of the world's great museum buildings, full of treasures from the Louvre and full of things which uh, Abu Dhabi is buying on its own behalf to replace the Louvre treasures as they systematically go back and are not, not on loan. And that seemed to be good. I thought, right, this is good. It may not be the ideal place for, um, uh, for it to be, but it's in a public collection, very high-quality building, and it's secure and it's available to the public. In fact, the only, but the only thing we know is it hasn't been bought by the Department of Tourism and Culture in Abu Dhabi. We don't know where it is at all, unless somebody's got some news. Anyway, that's just putting the record straight in a somewhat summary way, but uh, you'll have seen lots of things appearing in the press, sensationalised and in, in, uh, in one or two books, but uh, that's the story outlined in a, in a straightforward and accurate manner. And the picture itself, let's do some iconography first. Um, the Savota Mundi holds the mundus, holds a globe or an orb or a sphere, uh, familiar enough with ruler portraits, um, this is the golden bull of Charles IV, 1356 to 7. I simply chose it was it's an absolutely terrific image. The cross bands, he's not blessing, that comes from elsewhere. But the, very often the, the mundus has, a, has bands around it and a cross on top. It's the globus crucifer, as it's called. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a standard image. And it has to be frontal, that's how this image happens to work. Uh, the blessing gesture comes from the Christ Pancurator type. This is Kefalu in Sicily, a very brilliant example of it. In the middle, Roger van der Weyden, the Brach triptych, which is probably the immediate source for a lot of the Italian images in various copies, and one which doesn't have the blessing but was the archetypal frontal Christ. This is a copy of a Jan van Eyck. Um, Cusanus, the great theologian philosopher, um, gave a version of this to the monks in his home monastery in Germany and said the fact that the eyes follow you round, this sort of classic trope of these pictures, is an indication of the divine sight of God that you cannot escape it. So it was given a kind of theological gloss by Cusanus. Um, and I think that that directness of vision even without the theological glasses, is an important part that you cannot, as it were, escape Christ's gaze. I've got a very brilliant, full-scale, very spectacular reproduction made for the British Academy when I was talking there, and I decided not to put it in any of my rooms. I put it in a corridor <laughs> uh, to have that, or indeed the Mona Lisa looking at you all day is be quite, quite creepy. Um, the verses attached to the Salvatore Mundi are absolutely standard, and they're the ones that appeared in the later states of the Holler engraving. That the one on the right is a very early state before the, before they've been put in. Um, Matthew, come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, I am the the way, the truth, and the life. Take my yoke upon you. And learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the cross bands, I think, are the representation of the yoke. They're not the, 
the floppy bands that priests wear tucked into their belts. These are, these are heavy-duty orphreys. They're heavy-duty bits, uh, bits of needlework. Um, the quality of the picture, let's go in and look at what's happening. Some of it is just astonishing, and it's astonishing in a way that is Leonardo rather than anybody else. And Leonardo, you can see that his hair is painted with absolutely fizzing brilliance, um, enormous dexterity and rhythmic quality. But more than that, Leonardo was interested in what you might call the physics of hair. He says in the drawing on the right, and note the way that the curling of hair resembles the movement of water. You've got the current, you've got the tendency of water to revolve in water, and that provides a helix. Look at um, hair, you've got the weight of the hair, you've got the tendency of hair to curl, you've got a helix. And when you look at Leonardo's curls, the boys could do perfectly good curls for the use of. You know, they could do the, do the curly bit. But Leonardo's have a kind of anatomy to them, a sense of structure, which is his science of art. And it's not simply... Even the best copies don't, uh, don't really pick up on that. They don't uh, copy it meticulously. They just do curls that look OK. Uh, the blessing hand is actually pretty well preserved. And it looks rather simple at first sight, but if you look at the knuckles of the two fingers there, um, you can see there's a, a nice understated anatomy. He stressed that young figures didn't have pronounced anatomy, um, and it's entirely keeping with, with how he saw things. Um, one of the most interesting parts, one of the most sig significant parts, are the cross bands, which have this very angular interlace. I've suggested already that the angular interlace was not Leonardo's early mode of doing interlace patterns, these knot patterns. In 1500, where he was in Venice, and would have seen things like the pattern in the ceramic pattern on the right. And the central crossing point with the, the rock crystal, the crystal sphere in the middle of it, the generational geometry is a square which has been rotated 25 degrees. Very common in Islamic tiling patterns. And incidentally, the Jean Nouvel uh, roof for Abu Dhabi happens to be using that as one of the generative bits of geometry for his, for his pattern. Now, that, that actually does help date the work. And even more, this helps date the work because this is done in Venice in 1500 when he was witnessing a... He was gone from Milan to, to Venice and was employed for a, a, a month or two as a hydraulic engineer. Um, this is in Venice almost certainly was the wheels on the right of perpetual motion machines. And he witnessed a competition for perpetual motion in Venice, about which he was understandably scathing. But he's drawn these, these motion machines which have hinged hammers. I won't say how they work. But this is therefore dated pretty securely to 1500, and you can see him experimenting with, with angular ones, with bits of generational geometry of the sort which, which I've been suggesting. Um, so this is really, really pretty secure, and it means that it's, um, it's post-1500. Um, it was in the National Gallery exhibition, which Leonardo at the Court of Milan, he left the Court of Milan in 1499, so a, a, a bit of flexibility is required there. And there's a drawing in Christchurch, which Christchurch College in Oxford have rather unfortunately lost. Uh, 
which shows again him thinking about these essentially Islamic geometries. The one on the left is, is very much so. And there are also on that sheet things that, you know, I, I didn't really look at carefully. You just thought, well, maybe he's testing a pen. But then I went back to thinking about rock crystal and that being a rock crystal sphere. And one of the characteristics of rock crystal, you can get completely clear big bits of rock crystal, but they're very, very rare. You often get ones with cleavage planes in, or you, you very often get inclusions, which are air gaps. They're not technically bubbles in the same way in which you'd get with glass. And it, it occurs to me that uh, when he's sort of working out these interlace patterns, he's just thinking, you know, about these little things. He does it with a little curl of impasto and a, a highlight and a little dark bit. It's just done with two turns of the wrist. And it's almost as if he's rehearsing the the inclusions on that on that drawing but uh, I think there's yeah looking at rock crystal in, in the Ashmolean uh, the Ashmolean in Oxford that inherited John Tradescant's collection um, has a rather nice nice rock crystal sphere very difficult to photograph you can see things with your eye which match up much better than phot photography which um, it's quite limited in, in how it responds. Um, this is a little rock crystal pebble that I bought myself, and I think you can see how these inclusions work, how they pick up the light in a particular, particular kind of way. Once we know that this is rock crystal, then it alters the subject matter of the picture. The rock crystal alludes to the sphere, fixed crystalline sphere of the fixed stars which is the outermost limit of the universe as conceived at that time, the Ptolemaic un universe. Outside is infinity, is God, is the prima mobile. Um, all that miraculous metaphysical machinery of, uh, uh, of Christian belief. Um, but the rock crystal sphere is representing that outside one. Uh, the two examples I'm comparing with here, both Raphael, Raphael in the School of Athens, Ptolemy here holding the globe, and an unknown astronomer holding a celestial sphere. This is on the ceiling of the Stanza della Signatura, and is Urania or astronomy looking at her handiwork from outside with the Earth at the centre and the zodiacal ones in the, around. Leonardo has done it much more metaphorically by painting something which we can recognise, though it wasn't generally recognised as rock crystal. This means that Christ is no longer just saviour of the world, the mundus, he's saviour of the cosmos. This is a very typical Leonardo move. It's a very rigid subject. If somebody says, I want to sell it a mundi, there's not much you can do with it. But Leonardo has. He's found a way of extending the reach of the iconography. Interestingly, the Arbra picture, which is the one which has got the early version of the sleeve, um, does rather interesting things and th that copy is certainly knew what Leonardo was about and in this case you've got a little illuminated world at the centre this is the centre of this one which is a it's a hole as he's put a compass in for drawing the drawing the sphere this is heavily abraded these are remains of highlights but they're not coherent uh, it may be there was a little earth there and there may be that that there was a little glimmer of that sort. 
Anyway, if the Yarborough picture appeared, it'd be interesting to see it and do a proper technical analysis to come to terms with, with what's going on. Leonardo was much interested in these semi-precious minerals, in these minerals with interesting optical effects. He was asked by Isabella d'Este, the great collector in Ferrara, in Mantua, who he had personally met when he was there, about crystal vases in the Medici collection. Leonardo reports back on them, praising the ones that were flawless, etc. And he's, he, he, he's much interested in these. This is uh, an eyeglass of crystal which he's making. It's an occhiali di cristallo um, on a stand. And he tells you in the note exactly how thin it should be at the edges and how fat in the centre to do the necessary magnification. He says you can use this outdoors. Not sure why it's good for outdoors rather than indoors, but um, uh, it's an indication that he's involved with rock crystal as an optical uh, uh, as an optical substance, as something that has particular qualities and can be used for magnification. Um, much interested in optical effects of light at this time, this is the Codex Lester owned by Bill Gates, um, which I'm doing an edition of this year with Domenica Lorenza. And he's looking here at the Corpo Solari, the, the sun, the moon and the earth, and he's thinking about how do you get the crescent moon? And he notes that in the crescent moon there's an ashen light, lumen cenereum, as it was called by Galileo, um, in the moon. It's not just dark. And he argues correctly that this is earth light on the moon reflected up by the moon seas, uh, the earth seas onto the moon. Um, and furthermore, he says it's darker at this point, the lumen cenereum, than it is. It is here. Here it's against the blackness of the void and it looks brighter. Here it's against the light of the crescent moon and it looks darker. Um, this is the first time I know anybody in a science area think taking sight and its vagaries into account. Um, a, very, a very novel move to say we don't just need to look at something to understand it. We need to know our act of looking and what is actually going on. And at this time, and this is you know, mid middle of the first decade of the 16th century, he's looking at the eye in intense detail. As a young man, he assumed the eye was simple. It sent out kind of measuring rays and you then got measurements. He, as he became more acquainted with optical science in the Middle Ages, particularly from Islamic sources, Ibn al-Haytham or al-Hazani as called in the West, and this eye which is experimenting with here in these two sheets, um, here and suggesting he might make a model. Again, here he might make a model of the eye. This is not a very good slide. And he's contriving a double inversion. It goes like a camera obscura. It goes in, inverts, and the crystalline humour, more crystal, and then puts it the right way up for the optic nerve. Um, he couldn't accept, as most people didn't until Kepler, that the image in the eye was upside down. But it's clearly a complex system. Without going into it in in great detail, um, he decides that the eye and the sense of sight is very slippery. He says at one point in manuscript D, which this is from, which is from about 157, he says the eye does not know the edge of any body. That's to say you never absolutely perfectly know an edge. If you're too close, it's blurred. 
the further away you get, the more indefinite it is. He knew there was an optimum point. He didn't know about focus, didn't know the lens was focusing. Nobody did at this time. Um, but he, he decides that sight, which he had revered as this absolute conveyor of information early in his career, was now a very slippery, very uh, subjective thing. And we saw subjective effects in the Lumen Generaeum, the, the darker and the lighter effects in that. When we begin to look at the picture, we can realise that there is a kind of what we would call focus or depth of field. That's anachronistic, but you can, it's a handy way to describe it. That the most, the sharpest characterization of this rather waxy hand and the face less so. So in a very shallow pictorial space with no depth behind, just a, a neutral black void, he's getting space by dint of the sharpness of the image of the form. Um, again, that's Leonardo. None of the copyists understand that at all. None of the boys were up to that kind of thing. You needed to have thought profoundly about the sense of sight, about what we would call depth of field, about what we would call focus. Um, and this softness, this indefiniteness, it's what I call the optics of uncertainty, is absolutely vital for the psychology of the picture. It work, relates to the Mona Lisa in a way. Mona Lisa, there are no edges. I've got high-resolution images of Mona Lisa. You blow them up, there are no lines, no edges. No, the, the eye does not know the edge of any body. It's a scientific idea, but it's also a psychological one that the beloved ladies in Renaissance poetry are always out of reach. They're always elusive. They're deified. They exist in a realm different from ours with, with our ragged desires. So she, she is removed psychologically, emotionally from us. Christ is removed psych, uh, spiritually from us. He's incarnate, he's come down to earth in his body, but he remains mysterious, he remains ineffable, he remains ultimately unknowable. Um, so these pictures are, in a way are a pendant, uh, the one showing the elusiveness of the of the divine lady as being loved, the visual elusiveness, the romantic psychological elusiveness, and the Salvatore Mundi indicates the elusiveness of the ineffable Christ. Even though we can see him, we, ca we can't understand him. This corresponds absolutely to Leonardo's theological stance. Um, those of you who read Dan Brown may be convinced that Leonardo has just heretical theological stances, but he's absolutely orthodox. He thinks that in the world, the beauty of the world, its system of mathematical governance, of physics, of all the effects of the world, proportion, perspective, etc., these are signs of God's design. God is absolutely the designer of this miraculous world that we inhabit um, with its physical laws, its mathematics. Um, Outside that, and this is a perfectly respectable philosophical theological stance taken by some in the Middle Ages, is unknowable. The nature of the glory of God, the nature of heaven, the nature of this infinite realm is not accessible to us. Um, this is what, what he writes, and I'm showing you there the virgin child in St Anne from the National Gallery cartoon and the Louvre St John the Baptist. He writes, leave the definition of the soul to the minds of friars, fathers of the people, 
who by inspiration possess the secrets, I let be the sacred writings, for they are the supreme truth. Um, no sense of irony on that, and there are other similar pronouncements. He's basically saying, I will show God in nature, but I can't show God as God in his own realm. So it's a perfectly respectable theological stance, the notion of double truth. He does it in an extreme way. But that's Leonardo. He, that, that is how he thinks and how, how he works. I think if we look at Leonardo's later religious images, we can see exactly this going on. St John the Baptist there, who you saw briefly now uh, as a detail, no edges, uncertain, the optics of uncertainty used for theological and poetic ends. And for me, one of the miracles with Leonardo, you can go from the physics of the eye, the optics of the eye, to psychology, even into theology. Which comes first? I think with Leonardo, neither comes first. They're a kind of simultaneous production of, of how he works. And it is just awesome, I think, to, to find that science and imagination, intelletto, fantasia, poesia, and scientia, science, for him are unified fields of operation. For us, they're separate. For him, they represent a single field of endeavour. And there is the Salvator Mundi. I should say as a brief aside and advertisement at the end of this lecture, I'm doing a series of concerts with E. Fagiolini, the, the Beans. Um, uh, very, very, very brilliant um, early music and contemporary music group. We were at the Barbican on um, just around the corner here on Saturday. We're doing Bristol on Sunday. We're touring round. But there is a CD which you can all buy. Um, look up E. Fagiolini, F-A-G-I-O-L-I-N-I. -I. Look up Leonardo E. Fagiolini, you'll get clips, you'll get the whole, the, the whole thing. It's, a, it, it's absolutely wonderful to, to work with great musicians on a subject like Leonardo. Anyway, I, I finish with a plea. Where is it? <laughs> Thank you very much.